Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 23rd, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from the great city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. We've over the last year or two, done a number of shows on meritocracy, on its challenges, its problems, uh, how to reform our meritocratic system. Did a show with my old friend Daniel Markovitz from Yale Law School. Uh, he's written a, a very um, influential book on meritocracy, suggesting that most of the kids at Yale are miserable. They hate the kind of system that has existed um, and uh, they're suffering from it. Uh, did a similar show with Blake Smith from um, University of Chicago, in which he suggests that the kids at the top Ivy Leagues now are being force-fed wokeness. It's the only way you get into these colleges these days, by being able to articulate enough uh, a narrative of suffering uh, Michael Sandel at Harvard also is a great critic of uh, the meritocracy. He was on the show. His work has been enormously influential. Not everyone we've had on the show is a critic of meritocracy. My old friend Adrian Waldridge, a uh, very distinguished English writer at Oxford University, The Economist magazine, very much an icon of our meritocracy, believes that um, actually we need to support our meritocracy, but it nonetheless leaves the question of why anyone would really want to enter the meritocracy. It's highly competitive, um, and to get in requires an enormous amount of work and suffering, and even when you get in, you seem to be miserable or force-fed nonsense. Anyway, my guest today on the show will probably disagree with me. He's a young man, he's only 26. Um, he's already a veteran of about three or four of the top um, institutions of meritocracy in the world. And he has a new book out. I think it's his first book. Uh, it's called Accepted with an exclamation mark. And its subtitle is Secrets to Gaining Admission to the World's Top Universities. Jamie is joining me from New York City. Uh, Jamie, uh, welcome. Um, to begin, uh, the book, I guess, is useful if you want to get into one of these top universities. But why would anyone want to go to a place like Harvard or uh, Stanford, where most of the kids seem to be incredibly miserable? So sharing my own personal story, I grew up in New Zealand, you know, a small country in the corner of the globe. And in my high school, there were very few students that would head overseas to the US or UK for university. When I was 14, I heard about the opportunity to study at these top universities from a guy who was the valedictorian of my school. Ironically, he actually went to Yale and he told me that I should be thinking about, you know, applying to these global schools. When I went through high school, I had no idea about, you know, whole career paths like entrepreneurship or investing. I left New Zealand literally thinking entrepreneurship is what you did if you were unemployed. And then when I got to Harvard, this whole world was really uh, unlocked for me. I met these classmates who are more ambitious than kids I'd ever met before. I was exposed to professors like Larry. Though, Jamie? I mean, most people want to get into New Zealand. They don't want to leave. New Zealand now is perhaps um, <laughs> the hardest place to get in. If anything, um, you might have written a book about accepted how to get into New Zealand to live. 
Yeah, so I, I would say I had a, I mean, college is often regarded as the funnest years in someone's life. Now, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I haven't lived all my life yet, but my college years were super fun. You know, I met classmates from across the US, from Michigan, from, you know, uh, Maryland, from San Francisco, but also folks from China, from Africa, from India, from Russia. And I built this international friend group. I met with kids that were, you know, really ambitious and inspiring what they'd accomplished. And we had a ton of fun, but also, you know, we were exposed to some awesome academics, some great opportunities. Um, going to Harvard helped me unlock, you know, spots like working at Tiger, a hedge fund here in New York. And it's been a real joy. So this idea that these kids are, you know, miserable running around. Do I think you disagree is... with the, the Markovitz argument that most of the kids at places like Yale are actually pretty miserable? Yeah, I, I totally disagree. I think it's very disconnected from reality. You know, we've seen thousands of kids to these top schools. When I walk around these schools, um, you know, uh, there are a number of Crimson kids wandering around. I've, I'm, I've been now doing the, I've done undergrad degrees, master's degrees, MBA. I'm doing law school right now. Kids are really happy. They enjoy this. Law school. Why are you doing, where are you at law school? I'm at Yale Law School, so uh, all your Yale, all your Yale jokes are quite funny. But yeah, basically, my point here is, you know, I, I've lived and breathed this for my entire adult life since I was 18. How many, how many degrees do you have? I, I have five at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, I just finished a PhD at Oxford. Well, why would you want a law degree on top of a PhD from Oxford? <laughs> well, I just really enjoy learning, so you know, I'm probably the guy that finds these things the most fun. But you know. Uh, uh, in high school, I loved debating. I loved English literature. It was my strongest subject. So, um, you know, I'm really enjoying uh, some of the fun at Yale Law. It's a really intellectual community full of debate. Um, you know, uh, just yesterday, I was sitting in a class where we were talking about activist investing and the role of these folks like Carl Icahn, you know, in the financial markets. And we were hearing about these, you know, top corporate lawyers like, um, I think, Marty Lipton from, you know, Wachtell, New York law firm. I then changed classes and our guest speaker was Marty Lipton. Um, you know, the 90-year-old, uh, you know, revered corporate lawyer. So these places not only combine amazing classmates, top faculty, but also, you know, the ability to meet, you know, amazing speakers and so guests. I, I take, yeah, I mean, you probably could meet these people out of class. There's no reason to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars going to law school. How many, so you've got five degrees. You went, so which universities have you been to? Um, I did my Harvard undergrad degree in applied math and economics. I did a Harvard master's degree in applied math. Um, I did a Stanford MBA and then an education master's at Stanford. And I just finished this PhD in public policy at Oxford on the on the Rhodes Scholarship Program. And now you're at law school at Yale. Yes. So, so uh, probably I'm probably invested. I mean, you may not have spent the money, but you probably invested, what, a million dollars in your education? Yeah, al almost, almost. I think maybe a bit more than that. Um, Give me a couple of things that you've learned uh, it, from all those degrees. What have you, what, what, what's the biggest lesson you learned at all these different universities from Oxford to Stanford to Yale? Uh, okay, first of all, I mean, um, these universities have... No, that's a simple question, Jamie. Yeah. Answer the question. Your sure, sure. This is your exam. What have you learned? I've learned how to start a company, launch a company, scale a company, and make it successful. You don't learn that at university. Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard. Uh, uh, so... Uh, Bill uh, dropped out I, of Harvard. They didn't need to learn that. You don't learn that at university. A bit, bit of a difference. So Zuckerberg, as a you know tech entrepreneur, he, he basically had to build his app, right? And so he was a computer scientist by training. My background is more in education and business. So at Stanford Business School, I was exposed to, you know, marketing, product, strategy, sales, um, leadership, all these different classes that have really helped me take Crimson from, you know, a tiny company in New Zealand to the largest yeah. college. Well, you, you do run a, a large education company called New Zealand, uh, it's not called New Zealand, called <laughs> Crimson Education. 
which my my understanding is it's 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 a platform designed to allow people to join the meritocracy. But let me rephrase the question then, um, Jamie. You've been to all these universities. You've got a PhD. You've got a master's. You've got an MBA. Now you're at law school. Yeah. Um, I asked you what you'd learned. You said you the, the most important thing you learned is how to form a company. Have you acquired any wisdom? Yeah. So, okay. I mean, if you try... I've been doing these programs for seven seven plus years now, right? So trying to distill it all into a single lesson, I think, uh, makes it, it's a bit superficial, right? And it simplifies. I've it's I've learned not hundreds. superficial, Jamie. That that's a simple question. I gave you one. I gave what, you one. I gave yeah. you one. In all seriousness, it's it's not a superficial question. What wisdom have you acquired from the ten years yeah. you've done at university? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so uh, I guess first of all. Um, Going through your schools has really uh, helped with self-awareness, with understanding what makes me tick and also how to get the best out of teams. Whether it be, you know, I took a class uh, with Harvard Law School um, negotiating through interpersonal conflict. At Stanford, there was an executive challenge where you work in teams through different negotiation simulations. I took this program called Leadership Labs at Stanford as well. You know, when I was going through, going through high school, my, you know, I really didn't have much leadership experience, understanding of what, what made me tick and how I could be a stronger leader and also, you know, give to the communities I was a part of. Going through these different experiences, you know, meeting all these different really diverse students, I've built those skills through these formal training experiences in these classes, but also through extracurriculars and being part of the student community. So I don't mean to say your question about wisdom is superficial, rather the idea that I can simplify, you know, a decade of learning into a single lesson. I gave you one and it's a, it's a big lesson, you know, but I could give you a hundred lessons I've picked up over, over these years. And, you know, I think part of the value of these communities is you are exposed to very different, distinct ways of thinking across a whole variety of majors and backgrounds. Which yeah, I, I'm not so sure about that, Jamie. I think certainly if you listen to people like Blake Smith yep. or Markovitz or, um, or Michael Sandel, all of whom teach at these top universities, actually the education is pretty narrow. And it sounds to me um, from what you're saying as if the, the, the broad lessons that uh, uh, might be missing. You talked about self-awareness. What, what did you learn about yourself? Um, uh, so I guess I learned, first of all, um, you know, how I react in different high stakes uh, or stressful environments, the types of people that I like to be around that give me energy and the types of people that, you know, I, I don't particularly like to be around that, you know, I, I wouldn't really want in my life. The types of professors that, you know, generally click with me um, also intellectual fields that get me excited. For example, I didn't know much about sort of the law and economics field, the law finance economics field, but that's really an awesome set of interests that, you know, I'm really enjoying studying and I never would have been exposed to this had I not been at law school. So a lot of learnings about my interactions with others, the types of people I click well with, and then also the intellectual fields that I really want to go deep in. Um, and it, I think, of course, you can pick up anything theoretically, like on your laptop, learning online, but practically it's very difficult to do. And, that, you know, there's a reason why a lot of these uh, leading intellectuals went to these schools. On your point, these degrees are narrow, I would have to disagree as well. You know, in my undergrad degree at Harvard, like, I came from a Commonwealth country in a place like New Zealand or the UK. In these countries, you go to say your undergrad degree, your whole thing's in law or in commerce or in engineering, and, and you're narrowly siphoned into this area, which I think is really, you know, really silly if you're 18. In my undergrad degree, I could take, for example, classes like ethical reasoning, you know, comparative religion, uh, math, economics, stats, finance. Did you take anything from Sandel at Harvard? Uh, yeah, so I actually, I didn't take his class, but I read his book called Money Markets. Mm. I think it's, uh, what, you know, the, the Moral Limits of Markets. And also I read Justice. And I did actually go to his class. 
Mm. Um, it's very popular, but I'd already read the book, so I, I felt like who I were already... a couple, who were a couple of the professors you've studied with at, you, at all these different universities who have had the most impact on your life, but have shaped uh, your thinking. Yeah, sure. So there's a guy called um, uh, John de Figueiredo, Professor John de Figueiredo from. Uh, he's actually at Duke now, but he was a visiting professor at Stanford. He taught our strategy class at Stanford Business School my first year. And I think the way in which he, uh, you know, gave me a framework to think through strategic decision making as an entrepreneur, how to evaluate a landscape, how to figure out where to play, how to figure out how to attack the market, um, you know, and really grow a space and also continue to enjoy and grow your, you know, your moat in that space um, was very valuable. So he gave me a lot of very valuable heuristics for strategy. I think that's one. Second professor would be Larry Summers. Um, he was my thesis advisor, former president of Harvard. He helped me with my senior thesis, which was about the reach for yield behavioral transmission mechanism in, you know, in, in the economy, where basically during a low interest rate period, you have certain sets of investors that clamor towards riskier assets than they think they're investing Barry in. Barry Summers gave you much of a moral education. I know he was the the mentor, quote unquote, of um, Cheryl Sandberg. Of Cheryl Sandberg, and it's not clear to me he gave her much of a moral education. Did he teach you any morality, Larry Summers? Uh, yeah, def I mean, definitely. He's been a mentor to me very holistically. What, what, what did he teach you about doing good in the world? Well, you know, he inspired me to think through our Crimson Global Academy, which is a global online high school. So he, he helped me think about many of the gaps of traditional high school education, many of the learnings from online university programs, uh, both successes and failures, he witnessed being a part of them, and then helped me ideate, you know, this online high school, which is now impacting almost a thousand kids uh, and is a is a really fantastic, uh, you know, new way of growing through through the, through the high school experience. So, you know, his practical insights into gaps in traditional education systems really informed a lot of my thinking, um, uh, and also made me a more rigorous academic too. Had I not done that program with him, I probably wouldn't have been able to do this PhD program, uh, which helped me uncover a lot of different interesting nuances in the education arena. He also gave me, you know, rigorous training and things like econ econometrics with the feedback that he gave in my thesis. So. He gave me holistic insights into the gaps in traditional education today. Um, what, holistic, what does that mean, holistic insight? Yeah, holistic being that, you know, high school is not just about academics. It's about, you know, moral fabric. It's about leadership skills, communication skills, community service. You know, there are all these different functions in schooling. And so when I say holistic, you know, he has a very holistic view because, uh, you know, he's, he's seen these kids coming through, you know, Harvard's gates for years and years and years. He's been a senior leader, you know, president at Harvard. So he's got this broad perspective. So, well, again, coming back to my original question about um, Larry Summers, what, what moral education did he give you? The reason I ask you is it seems as if there's a, there's a crisis in moral education at some of these universities, especially at Stanford. I've done a series of interviews with academics there, one with Meren Sahami, who teaches a very influential introductory class on tech. Um, suggesting that they're trying to teach tech and business students more morality. I'm just curious what Larry Summers taught you about, because he's a controversial guy. A lot of people don't like him for various reasons, political reasons. Um, what did he teach you about doing good in the world? Well, uh, I guess doing good is is a uh, objective of you know of change of impact. And so what he helped me do is think through the existing gaps in the global education system that require change to then to then do good to improve you know the uh, livelihood of students to improve their their joy going through school to improve their sense of community and so 
uh, I really like Larry's thinking because it synthesizes not only, you know, theoretical expertise, but really pragmatic views on what's going on as well. And so, you know, he's one of the few guys that can move between the worlds of rigorous academia all the way to the practical realm of entrepreneurship and, and, and you know, offer really insightful uh, critique. So his thinking really helped me develop, you know, our school. And, you know, a school is one of the most uh, influential things globally to, you know, uh, teach morality. Right. Because you and, uh, and your school is, as I said, crimson. Finally, we're, we're going to get to the book after the break. Uh, By the way, but, just um, to clarify, what, what, you know, in all the different universities you've been to, all these different classes, what was the fav- What was your favorite book that you read or sort of writer? What did you read? Which book really had the big, has had the biggest impact on you? The most influential book I've read recently has been AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. This book talks about the rise of artificial intelligence in China and the West, this race for supremacy and this new frontier of technology and the impact that AI will have on many different industries. I like the book because it distilled fairly complicated ideas into, you know, really uh, pretty useful. By, 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 I mean, you could have picked that up in an airport and bookstore. Anything by people who are no longer alive? Uh, no longer alive. I mean, uh, in Ethical Reasoning, we read a bunch of texts from various philosophers. Um, uh, on, you know, on, like uh, Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche? Who's yeah. Nietzsche? Uh, did I get that right? Uh, Nietzsche. James. Nietzsche, yeah. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. universities to get that one right. Anyway, I am talking to <laughs> Jamie Beaton, the author of Accepted. Uh, we're going to take a short break, Jamie. And then afterwards, um, we're going to talk about the book, about how indeed, if you do indeed want to be accepted to Stanford or Harvard or Chicago or Columbia, uh, you can, uh, Jamie's new book, uh, Accepted, will uh, get you in. So stay, stay with us, everybody. In 60 seconds, we'll be back with the great Jamie Beaton. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same. if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We're back with Jamie Beaton, the author of Accepted. Uh, Jamie is um, a member of the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. And if you want to join him in that spectacularly exclusive club, you need to read his book, Accepted. Uh, Jamie, how do you get accepted? What are the, the core strategies that you're offering in this new book, which came out today? Um, that uh, will will allow you to, or allow our, our viewers, our listeners, to join you in that 1% of the 1% of the 1%. So first of all, uh, this process begins at the age of about 13 or 14. And th these colleges will assess your performance over this four-year period throughout high school across academics, extracurriculars, leadership, your personality, as well as uh, your performance in different interviews and essays as well. The first thing you've got to nail is the academics. That's going to involve your GPA. It's going to involve things like the SAT, which even though it's currently optional, you know, our analysis shows considering to take the test boosts your odds quite a bit. Then you want to lean into things. That show hey, we don't need to buy your book for that. Everybody knows you have to take the test and, and you have to do well in academics. What are you, what are you telling people that, that isn't already common knowledge? Yeah, sure. I'll give you an example. So the book's full of these things, but here's one. So U Chicago over the last several years has been really kind of gaming their admissions process by offering both a binding early decision and an early action round, uh, which I'll explain in a second, as well as a regular round binding and non-binding round. And what this does is a, is a student has to choose when they apply to U Chicago uh, whether they want to commit. So if they get in, they have to go or whether they you know, don't want to commit. Now, what the student doesn't really realize is that U Chicago on their end rejects kids who don't commit through the binding process at a much higher rate. Now, why this is quite interesting is most schools like Yale will only offer one option. Early action, it's non-binding. So the, the school doesn't find out your preferences about how much you actually like the school because they've got, they give you no option to choose binding or non-binding. It's either one or the other, depending on what the school is. Wharton is binding, Yale is non-binding. UChicago offers both. Um, and the reason why they do that is they can then filter your intent so that if you like you Chicago, but not enough to commit, you might apply non-binding. Those kids then, then get declined at a much higher rate. So we've been able to, for example, get a load of kids into U Chicago by focusing on this binding strategy and, you know, helping kids figure out, you know, who, who actually might like U Chicago and then being willing to commit in either round because actually the, the hit rate getting in there is way higher. Um, U Chicago also has some really interesting essays. They ask questions. One of my students wrote an essay on, um, what happens if the earth becomes an Oreo cake? Obviously a silly, ridiculous question, but it's creative and funny and, you know, showed the students understanding of science and, you know, other sort of economic uh, issues in this essay. Um, and so that's a good example of a little quirk in the book, which, you know, uh, pulls back the lens on how UChicago has been, been able to vaunt itself up the rankings. UChicago today has a yield rate of about 75%, uh, which is, you know, third only to Harvard and Stanford of these top tier schools. And, um, you know, interestingly, a lot of Ivy League schools are actually preferred more than UChicago, but they've been able to kind of engineer this yield rate through this tricky, you know, admission strategy with their, with their binding and non-binding. to me, Jamie, and certainly from some of the materials on the book, uh, some of the, the bullets about moneyballing the university rankings, Scott class spamming your way yeah. to academic yeah. supremacy, playing the early application data game, what essentially you're teaching in this book is uh, how to how to hack the system, or really how to game the system. 
Is that right? Yeah, so uh, to be to be more clear, uh, I see thousands of kids all over the world and across America who don't have good college admissions guidance counselors. They're not at Phillips Andover or Eaton or one of these schools, and they are going into this process really blind. And in doing My that, my first wife was at uh, Exeter. Well, uh, I'm sure she I'm sure she had good college admissions guidance then. But a lot of the students that we work with don't. And so the idea behind this book is to help give you all of these different strategies and tactics to really help level the playing field. So that if you're not at one of these elite schools, you know, you're not left behind because you're, oh, you know, so you're you are doing good. You're, you're leveling the playing field here by allowing anyone to hack the system. Uh, yeah, hacking, I, I wouldn't agree with, but, you know, showing showing the students the you know ways in which they can represent themselves most effectively to the schools. Um, that's really, you know, the aim of the book. So the idea is any 13 year old can pick this book up. And they've got a good sense of so, you know, uh, 13, so they need to prepare themselves. It's a five year process. Yeah, I would say so. I began this process when I was about 14. Um, but again, know, coming back to and I, and I take your point at how hard it is to become like you, the top one percent of the one percent of the one percent. But is it really worth it? Are you happy? I'm, I'm super happy. Now, first of all, um, you know, uh, the thing about these schools is that it's been about a decade at Crimson. Our students have gone on now. They're, they've got jobs at Facebook, Google, Goldman Sachs, Amazon. They're trading on you know different firms like Jane Street, D. Shore, and stuff. One of my students just raised several million for a startup in Silicon Valley. That boy came from you know a small town in New Zealand, came through Crimson, went to Harvard, and is now a Silicon Valley CEO raising all this capital uh, in the middle of you know very close to where you are right now. So what I've seen is these schools are launch pads to opportunity, and a lot of these students are coming from humble backgrounds, from far flung parts of the country or the world. And these schools really enable them to get into that, you know, social class or a set of opportunities that they never really could have dreamed of had they not gone through these schools. So what I'm really trying to do here is to really break down these these doors so more of these ambitious kids from untraditional backgrounds can land these roles and opportunities. And I've seen, you know, there's there's nothing I would argue as effective as these degrees in helping you jump into the, into that class. So not every student wants to go to McKinsey or be a banker or, you know, be an entrepreneur. But if you do aspire to some of these pathways, this is a fantastic way to do it. What's the difference between what you're doing at Crimson and more traditional college um, college tuition um, platforms like the Australian Studiosity? What are you doing that's different from other companies? Yeah, sure. So there's a there's a big difference. So there's broadly tuition platforms that do like tutoring, but Crimson's focus. And this on is uh, like Studiosity. Yeah, sure. So, so that, I, I'm not familiar with this business, but it sounds like it's like a tutoring platform. So when you come to Crimson, um, you are assigned a university counselor who basically will um, figure out uh, what areas to focus on, what you should develop for your extracurriculars and academics. You'll then be surrounded with a team of mentors. These mentors usually come from these top universities, from Harvard, from Yale, from Oxford and stuff. And these mentors will coach you in all the different aspects of the process from, you know, debate coaching to VEX robotics to interview prep for Oxford Cambridge to the SAT tutoring. And so rather than kind of ad hoc academic support, this is a coordinated multi-year strategy to really boost your odds. Beyond all these mentors we have that work with a student, we also have some really powerful data science capabilities in Crimson. My background is in applied math. And basically we have these you know, chance me algorithms we use to assess the students' odds of admission to all the various schools. So they can construct a portfolio of safety, match and reach schools that give them you know, a good shot of getting into a range of the schools they want to. We also have a tool called Pathfinder where the students basically get a live view of based on their current candidacy, what tier of school are they trending towards? So they can know, okay, if I do, if I launch this podcast or if I do some more academic competitions, I can boost my profile. Maybe I should work on my GPA this semester, that kind of thing. So Crimson combines this 
you know, elite team of mentors around the student, as well as our content and technology platform. Um, also, you're showing on the screen right now, Crimson Education, our college admissions unit. We also have our online high school, which is Crimson Global Academy. That's our fully accredited high school, which you know families can use as a either full replacement to a physical high school or part-time, where they can go to their physical school, then use Crimson Global Academy to do extra things like A-levels or, or AP qualifications. So that's really how Crimson works. And it's translated to basically now we've sent with our kids have gotten more than 400 Ivy League offers more than 160 Oxford Cambridge offers and more than 2,700 top 50 US college offices, off, offers. So the system is very effective at this point. And, um, you know, the students have a lot of joy as well going through this, you know, quite contrary to, to your earlier assertion that these kids are unhappy. Um, they often get a lot of purpose and clarity and, and a sense of mission from this journey. Your, uh, your, your platform, Crimson Education, um... Is has significant investment from uh, Korea, Korean funds. Is there something Asian about what you're doing? Uh, I know one of the, uh, without wishing to sound too racist here, um, one of your uh, blurbers, and I'm sure you study with her at Yale Law School, is Amy Chua, who uh, is, of course, the author of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, perhaps the most articulate and successful um propagandist, I guess, of, of the meritocracy. Um, do you find that the Asian markets are stronger for Crimson education than the European ones? Yes, I guess on, on your first point, we do have some great investment from Korea, but um, our major institutional investors are, are American funds, um, like Tiger Global, for example, that you know invest in uh, fast-growing technology companies around the world. Um, so uh, you know we, we do have that, I guess, US-centric investment. As far as your question, um, about you know our quote unquote Asian focus you're describing. Our students do come from a wide variety of backgrounds, but Crimson is very popular in Asia. We've got offices uh, in you know China, Singapore, Korea, Why Thailand. Do you think different cultures sort of gravitate to this um, this 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 intense desire to enter the meritocracy to get to become like you, the top one percent of the one percent of the one percent. Okay, so basically, uh, in a place like China, you grew up in this ferociously competitive country with more than a billion people. And for a while, your performance in the national exam, like the Gaokao, directly translates to the job, jobs you get. You don't even have a choice. You get assigned to these jobs. This is going back a little while in, China, you know, in, in, in China's evolution. Um, what this means, basically, is a lot of these families have grown up in this you know, idea that education is literally the determinant of your future. It's not like a maybe. It, it directly impacts what job you get, the salary of those jobs, and also potentially even who you marry and the different social classes. Same thing is true in India as well with a very competitive system to get into their national exams, like uh, you know, to get into these national universities like IIT. So basically, in these you know massive countries with this huge you know competition, and um, you know uh, these are often developing economies, there is this um, you know ferocious uh, love of education as this way to you know get ahead and open up opportunities. Now, America you know has been on top for a while in terms of geopolitical power, but in the last thirty years, uh, you know China's significance has grown tremendously. And if you look at Ray Dalio's recent book, you know the U.S. has been in sort of a secular decline for the last decade or so, where the China's kept rising. And I think part of the reason for that is the you know extreme focus on education across the nation, from the national universities to the high schools. If you look at, for example, a lot of these Ivy League schools today, there are big communities, um, you know, from uh, you know Asian heritages, partially because this cultural focus in education really generates results. And ultimately, it's not rocket science. You know, learning is difficult. You've got to put in the work, pick up those academic skills, build those fundamentals. 
and you know those who put in the most work will will do the best and and i think there is this cultural focus in these ethnicities on education which you know is unsurprising and that's why for example at a school like um, I believe Caltech or the UCs, where there's no affirmative action, the proportion of kids in these colleges that come from an Asian background are substantially higher than those in other schools where there are affirmative action procedures. Do you believe and, in uh, affirmative action? Do you think that's a good policy? So I do think that there's you know systematic disadvantage from certain groups for sure. Obviously, um, you know we do a lot of work, for example, in the Maori community in New Zealand, where we give a scholarship, a set of scholarships every year to students. Um, to make sure they get access to these top universities. You know, one of my uh, young scholars, a boy called Sam Taylor, um, Maori student from Mount Maunganui in New Zealand, he's now at Harvard on an almost full scholarship. So I do think uh, basically in general, um, we can't be blind to the fact that it's a lot harder to get into one of these schools if you're from a, a disadvantaged background in the middle of Australia compared to some elite New York family that's had three generations of, you know, parents at these schools with legacy advantage. Um, so I think, you know, there's some logic behind this consideration, but I, I don't think it's particularly fair that families from, say, a Chinese or Indian background are uh, discriminated against in the process. So, you know, I think um, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm okay with it to a point, but I think, um, you know, it, it definitely needs to be carefully calibrated. And, um, uh, you know, I think some of the things, for example, like the gaps in, you know, average emission statistics between these different ethnic, ethnic groups needs to be carefully studied and evaluated because at a certain point, you know, it becomes discriminatory to these other ethnicities. Um, so I think I'm a bigger fan of using income as the way to do, you know, affirmative action where families from lower income backgrounds can get in with lower academic grades because they had relatively less advantage. I don't like to use ethnicity as a tracking statistic for income. I rather just use income if you can measure it accurately. So that's probably what I would lean towards, um, you know, but, you know, this is obviously a messy and challenging question. Well, Jamie Beaton, uh, I'm not sure if, do you think you would be accepted if this was a university interview? Do you think you'd uh, well representing yourself in this? You tell me. You interview everybody. Have uh, I some good argument? Of the 1% of the 1%. I'm curious. Are you happy with your performance today? I, I'm not either. I'm from New Zealand. I came here when I was 18. I have no connections to America. So, you know, I think I, I'm at least hopefully I'm a good example of the fact that if you put in work early in high school, you get into these, you know, get into these great institutions that unlocks opportunity. You know, it's I think. Uh, and Jamie Beaton's new book, Expected <laughs> Secrets to Gaining Admission to the World's Top Universities, is just out today. It's uh, spectacularly useful if you want to figure out how to get to Jamie's secrets. So I would strongly encourage people to buy it. Uh, Jamie, what else should people be reading in February 2022, um, in addition to, uh, to your new book, Accepted? I think uh, I really enjoyed Ray Dalio's recent book, um, which is really about uh, the rise and fall of nations. He takes a deep dive into the last thousand plus years of history uh, and looks for these tracking, you know, indicators of when a nation's rising and falling and uh, tries to chart us where we are today along that uh, axis. So, you know, uh, some of the commentary earlier I, I was talking about about China and America came from that book. And I thought, um, you know, history, it could, you know, it could take you years to do rigorous study of history, but his book's a pretty punchy summary of some of the key things I think you need to know, told through his really interesting lens. He's, uh, he's a former invest, investment banker, isn't he, Ray Dalio? Uh, he, he's a current, he, he currently runs the world's biggest hedge fund, um, Bridgewater Associates. So, you know, he has that macroeconomic lens, but he's a real student Would of history. Would you like to be really, really rich? I mean, you're obviously doing pretty well for yourself as a 26-year-old, but you're into entrepreneurial activity. You have a company now worth, 
hundreds of millions of dollars. Would, would you like to be a billionaire, Jamie? What I focus on is, I guess, what gives me joy. And, and, and what, I, what really gives me joy at Crimson is seeing the students going from all these far-flung countries to you know these amazing sets of opportunities in front of them that gives me great momentum every day i think you know i was an investor on wall street i chose to leave that world to build crimson and really get into the education space because uh you know i saw firsthand how impactful these organizations are and i think the access to them is not is not equal right now and i'm you know hopefully trying to make a difference through the work that we're doing so i think people have to follow their passions if you want to be a quant trader on wall street and make a billion dollars by all means go hard and enjoy yourself but for lots of other folks, um, you know, I think the the impact and the mission of the work they're doing is more important. And I think entrepreneurship is cool in that way because you have a lot of agency to to build, uh, you know, a proposition that aligns to your worldview and you know can make an impact. And that's what gives me energy every day. Agency, Jamie Beaton, the author of Accepted, the two A words, agency and accepted. Maybe if you are accepted, that will help you with agency. Finally, uh, Jamie, in your very good position as a a 26-year-old wonder kid with, I don't know, four or five degrees from top universities. Jamie Beaton, uh, who runs the world? Uh, I think I think mothers run the world. Um, you know, a, a mother really is uh, playing the critical role of raising uh, young children. A lot of the time, um, they're often disproportionately uh, responsible for a lot of these household uh, activities, raising the family, and, you know, hopefully that's shared more equitably over time. But mums and, and a lot of the work that I do, play this huge role in the child's life. So all these top people we see around the world, you know, uh, they all typically have a strong mum behind them a lot of the time. Sometimes if you don't have a mother, Jamie. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be a really tough place to, to I, I actually grew up with uh, without a father figure, but with my mum. And, um, you know, I think that just puts obviously an extra burden on the other parent. But, you know, just in general, uh, the, the mum's often the one playing this big role parenting at home. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, dad can form that role if, if mum's not there, unfortunately.